you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. gospel passages that you just uh, feel like you can't just jump in with a joke right afterwards, right? Um, it's it's uh, a text that is a bit dissettling, uh, creates a bit of uh, discomfort, um, and yet is, they found him. Brad, see, we can now turn it to a joke. Brad has made me feel better. They have they found my boy. Um, and so instead of leading with a joke, I want to tell you about, uh, I don't often lead with jokes, but you can fall in a, root, a rut sometimes. I want to tell you about something that has been a means of grace for me lately, and it's this Friday morning church history study we've got going on. Um, It is the most intense reading I've done of any study since I've been here for four four plus years now. Uh, It is tedious, uh, and it is outside of my comfort zone because it's a discipline I'm not well read in. It's a vocabulary I'm not super comfortable with. It's um, it, it it requires work, and we make outlines together, and we go look stuff up on the map because we don't know what half of it is. Uh, But it has been a deeply formative group for me uh, because it has asked me to keep the first things the first things and to to say what is uh, crucial and what is not, what is uh, worth dying over and what is not. And it's happened at the exact same time that we as a church have been trying to think theologically, and we've landed on a paradigm that we have been using and that has uh, informed our church history study. In that study, we've watched as the early church wrestled with what we're calling dogma. These items that are central tenets of the Christian faith. Uh, These are the things that are contained in our Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. These are uh, kind of the gifts of the major church councils. Uh, And and we have watched and read, we haven't watched, we've read about those people uh, who went to these councils and wrestled with the very nature of God and the nature of Christ Uh, what it means for God to be triune and for Christ to be human and divine. Uh, And and it has uh, called us back to those things that unite us across the the kingdom of heaven. These things that uh, we hold together, whether you are uh, Methodist or Baptist or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Salvationist or Assemblies of God, these are the things that uh, hold us together as the very body of Christ. And we've watched uh, both uh, a zeal for defending these Uh, and a uh, desire uh, to, as much as possible, remain together even as they deeply disagreed about these uh, major issues. It's been helpful for us to think about that because uh, we've also been talking about matters of doctrine as a church, right? What are are these next-level theological concepts that really do define us in our particular areas? Uh, And this is the part of church history we're in in the study right now. Uh, we've moved beyond claims of who God is, and we're now at questions of, like, uh, what about the use of icons in worship? Uh, for your, your Greek Orthodox friends, this is still very much an important part of their worship uh, to, to um, uh, offer some adoration to these saints who are depicted, but while uh, having it lead to the worship of the one true God. We're at the point of discussing uh, the very nature of what happens in the body and blood of Christ at the table, 
and, and how uh, different groups would get pulled in uh, different directions depending on what they think is happening in that body and blood. Uh, these are important, important matters, but they uh, don't divide Christ's body. His body is uh, indivisible, right? Uh, these matters end up leading the church in different directions, and we begin to get some church splits over these particular matters. Um, but but the, the thing that overgirds all of it is that they still hold together as the body of Christ. Whether you think these icons are uh, a, a significant portion of your worship, or whether you're over on this side over here saying, can't have those icons, or whether you think the body and blood are wholly transubstantiated to be uh, just body and blood with no remaining bread or juice, or whether you're over here going, it's, it's something. Uh, there's fully Jesus' body and blood, and yet we still uh, know that what we're tasting tastes like Ruthie's delicious bread and like Welch's grape juice. Um, and yet they still hold together uh, as the church. Uh, what we're going to see pretty soon in our church history study is that they're going to get into uh, particular uh, theological faults of beliefs. These things that uh, Joe Pastor over here might think one way and Joe Pastor over here might think of another way. Uh, she might uh, baptize the faithful with a clamshell and uh, uh, kind of spritz some water over the head. Uh, and this pastor over here might dunk you in a horse trough. Um, and yet... Uh, we held together um, as the church. When we set uh, dogma as the thing that unites the very body of Christ as one being, uh, we can rest assured that whether we have disagreements on other issues, uh, we love each other deeply. We see this in this church history book and we see this uh, in the church we're around today. We can, we can disagree on doctrinal matters and still be united in the dogma that keeps us as one in Christ. Does that make sense? I have to confess that uh, I've heard from a few of you, I think I did not present this previously in a way that sounded charitable and sounded like uh, we were united in the body of Christ. Um, I've heard from a few of you that uh, one time as I was trying to talk about Methodist distinctives that it sounded like I was uh, denigrating uh, another theological tradition. And I, I really appreciate that you've told me this because I hope you know my heart uh, uh, would not desire that to be so. Um, I, I uh, give thanks uh, for the good that the Southern Baptists have done in our world. I give thanks for what the Presbyterian Church in America has done in the world. I give thanks for the Lutheran Church and the good they have done. And together we are united under this one true God. The body of Christ cannot be split. Uh, we are uh, one. What's that song? We are one in the body. We are one. Y'all don't want to hear me sing solos. We've established this already. Um, and so I need to be clearer when I talk about matters of doctrine uh, my deep love for those who have doctrinal differences with us while we hold together under dogma you, you drove up and there's a cross and flame on the steeple Ray Hornback regularly tells me about the process of getting the United Methodist cross and flame up there and for that I am grateful uh, when we drive in there are markers of our uh, membership within a group, right? We are uh, a subset of the church. We are uh, a particular tradition, and we're not even the whole uh, Wesleyan tradition. There's, uh, you could pull up to a, a free Methodist church or a Wesleyan church or an Assemblies of God. They're kind of Wesleyan. Uh, you could pull up to the Salvation Army. They're Wesleyan. And all have a bit different uh, doctrine and belief. 
and still be united in this dogma, the, the claims of our creeds, these things uh, that we say are truths about God. I have felt uh, the need to be more precise in this Roman study uh, about the things that are ours and that are gifts of the world uh, while trying to be much more clear uh, about my love for others whose doctrine is different. Fair? Okay. We are in this Roman series uh, that is full of texts that have invited doctrinal uh, differences in doctrinal reflection. Um, Each of the major theological streams, uh, kind of Calvinism, Lutheranism, uh, Presbyterianism, and Wesleyanism, all uh, read these texts in particular ways uh, to honor God in the ways they feel that God has revealed themselves to them. Uh, And so we're uh, we're reading it as United Methodists, uh, united with the church through our love of God. Uh, Today's text gets to a major difference in doctrinal thought amongst different church traditions. Last week we had talked about uh, that really we are saved by Christ's faithfulness that then allows us in his grace uh, to then have faith ourselves. The week before, uh, we saw this picture that uh, Abraham was declared righteous uh, before he was ever, ever circumcised and before anybody had ever thought about eating kosher. Uh, these are the foundational things that uh, Paul is trying to teach that hold uh, for the whole of the Christian tradition. Uh, none of our major theological streams would disagree to that point. These are dogmatic claims that uh, Christ died for us um, and that uh, there is nothing we can do uh, to earn his love. Uh, the text we get into this week uh, starts with, so what therefore should we do, which suggests that we have now skipped something. Uh, last week we got these truths about Christ's faithfulness, uh, and then this week we just jump right into sin. And what happens is a major uh, kind of uh, picture that Paul uses gets jumped over in our lectionary. Uh, last week we get, uh, uh, we, we should have gotten uh, to this next part they just leave out. It's a part that is confusing and uh, requires a lot of reading uh, to go back and forth over and say, what is happening in this moment? Because Paul says, for just as sin entered the world through Adam, so now too life enters the world through Christ. Christ is the new Adam. uh, And then Paul spends verse after verse trying to paint this picture of how things are different. If Adam's sin has gone through our our generations and it's just a reality of humanity, uh, because of Christ's death, it is also offered to the whole of humanity as well. Make sense? Um, This is where we start getting squirrely in theological traditions. So what do we actually mean that Christ died It uh, defeats Adam's sin and offers life to the world. Um, I'm going to read the part at the very end that he skips, and this is is key. Of course, I've got everything highlighted. Uh, So now the righteous requirements necessary for life are met for everyone through the righteous act of one person, just as judgment fell on everyone through the failure of one person. Many people were made righteous through the obedience of one person, just as many people were made sinners through the disobedience of one person. The law stepped in to amplify the failure, but where sin increased, grace multiplied even more. 
The result is that grace will rule through God's righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, just as sin ruled in death. This is the uh, material that uh, precedes today's text. Uh, So therefore, should we keep on sinning, hinges right on this very claim that there is nothing humanity did to earn uh, God's uh, love or favor. There is nothing humanity did that fixes Adam's sinful state. Instead, uh, love uh, and righteousness comes through the one who is love and righteousness. I feel like I'm preaching the same, every, same sermon every week up to this point, right? Uh, you might have felt I've been uh, heavy on grace and light on uh, sin for the last few weeks because uh, these texts have been asking us to make some very uh, key distinctions I think the key distinction that we have to start with every week is that uh, just as Abraham did nothing to earn God's favor, so we do nothing to earn God's favor. Uh, We get to this place where there is nothing we do to earn God's love. And then we flip to today's text, which gets right into our actions. And this is where uh, we can uh, find ourselves misunderstanding even our own theological tradition. Should we keep on sinning so that grace could multiply? Uh, Absolutely not. This is the firmest no, this is a heck no in Scripture. You cannot keep on sinning so grace will multiply. And and Paul goes on uh, to do what Paul does and try to make a a philosophical claim about what is happening for you, the Christian. I like philosophy about as much as I like a root canal. But we have to understand the logical argument he is making here. He is making a claim about us as people, not about the way we think. Uh, In philosophy, this is a claim of our ontology, not our epistemology. It is not what we think about God or what we think about behavior. He is claiming in today's text that as we died with Christ, our very insides were changed. That we are different people. And uh, our tradition, we would talk about this being the moment where we Uh, We're justified and regenerated. Our hearts now are different. And Paul is going to go on and say that before this, sin reigned in your heart, but now righteousness reigns in your heart through God's grace. So don't keep on sinning, he says. Y'all like to get feisty with me when we're in studies, and, uh, and you say something like, well, we're just humans. We're not perfect. Nell, I love you. I love you. She says this regularly, uh, and she, she knows my heart, so she's comfortable with me saying this. Uh, we, we don't fall back on we're just human, do we, do we Nell? Uh, we fall on to Christ has done something that changes our very heart. Uh, for other theological traditions, they will say, no, we can't stop sinning until that moment when we are raised from the dead. Uh, in this life, we We will sin. We will keep on sinning. Sin will uh, uh, abound even though Christ has defeated death. In our tradition, we believe that in the moment we are justified, we begin a journey of sanctification. And Paul is describing the very foundations of this moment for us. This moment where sin ceases to reign in our hearts, even though it remains in our world. Uh, We just got back from annual conference, and one of the questions, two of the questions they asked people who are going up for ordination are, uh, are you moving on to perfection? And do you expect to be made perfect in this life? And this is rooted in this passage. Paul is saying, you can be freed from sin because the work Christ did. 
There's nothing you could do to be freed from sin. There's nothing you could do to set aside. But because Christ's righteousness is in you, you have been set free. This might be the most uh, significant distinction of Wesleyan uh, Christianity there is, that we don't believe we wait till the grave to be made holy, that God is making us holy today. Our hearts are changed. God's sanctifying grace is available to us, and we are being made holy day after day. What usually happens when I say this in one of these small group rooms is, well, I still make mistakes. I still sin. And I still do these things. And, uh, and I'll concede that, right? The, the entire Andover community is not wholly sanctified yet. I'm not wholly sanctified yet. Uh, but I, I tend to follow up with this next question. I bet uh, you don't sin intentionally the way you used to, right? So I'd love you to ponder that. Even as you think about your humanity and you think about the things in your life that are not uh, the way you would love them to be. Those moments where you do have anger or even a little bit of wrath. Those moments where uh, you get things wrong. I bet uh, you feel differently about them now than you did when you first met Jesus. Is that a fair assertion? Uh, do you willfully sin as much as you did uh, before you knew the grace of God? I'd like a few heads like this. You don't have to you don't, have to do, you don't have to give me a hand clap for Jesus, but I'd like a little, no, I'm not, right? Uh, we, uh, we struggle to see God's grace growing us day after day in holiness, but I bet if you look back over the last 10 years, you can absolutely see where God has been transforming your heart through his grace, where, where you have uh, moved from uh, sinning just a little bit more willfully to a little bit less willfully, where uh, you are growing in love of God a little bit more and of your neighbor just a little bit more. This is... Uh, our gift to the world. If we didn't have this all, if we didn't believe that things change now, really then nothing does matter but heaven and hell. But we believe that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and God's grace is doing things in this very moment. So when the people go up for ordination, they have to answer, yes, I believe I am moving on to perfection and I expect to be made perfect in life. Uh, Wesley's, uh, John Wesley, the uh, founder of the Methodist movement, uh, had, had a number of things he was known for, but this idea of Christian perfection is probably most significant. Um, and I was reading one of his sermons this week. Jake, will you pop this up? This is from the uh, lovely-sounding sermon, The Spirit of Bondage and Adoption. Wesley wrote back before we used gender-inclusive language, and so he uses he and man a lot in here. Uh, I'm going to attempt on the fly to change, uh, to reflect that this is for all of us. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty not only from guilt and in fear, but from sin, from that heaviest of all yokes, that basis of all bondage. Their labor is not now in vain. The snare is broken, and they are delivered. They not only strive, but likewise prevail. Uh, they not only fight, but conquer also. Henceforth, they do not serve sin. They are dead unto sin and alive unto God. Sin doth not now reign even in their mortal body, nor doth he obey in its desires thereof. It's King James English, but it's good. He does not yield his members, or they do not yield their members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but as instruments of righteousness unto God. For now, being made free of sin, they become the servant of righteousness. 
Other traditions have a different doctrine of sin and sanctification than we do. I think ours is a gift to the world. The other traditions that have a different doctrine of sin and uh, sanctification are absolutely our brothers and sisters in Christ and doing amazing things for the kingdom of God. Uh, But uh, this, for me, uh, is what gives my faith life. This is what uh, I believe is why uh, God has called us to be his people today. If, we, if now doesn't matter, why does any of this matter? If, if today uh, the world can't become a little more holy, what is this all about? If really all we have to do is say, yes, Jesus, I believe, and hold on to see if we uh, enter into heaven or we go to hell, uh, this is really uh, a cruel uh, thing. And this is where the other Christians have answers. Uh, they will have uh, the security of their faith. It's a, it's a doctrine that you can be assured of your salvation. Uh, you'll have other answers. But Iris says that uh, what matters uh, right now is that Christ reigns in our hearts. Sin no longer does, and our behavior can look different. This is easy for those of us who would uh, lean towards perfectionism uh, to switch back around and see that we need to make our behavior uh, be X, Y, or Z so that God might love us. Friends, this text says that is not the case. There is no chance we could change our behaviors enough to earn God's love, that in fact, we had to do nothing to earn God's love. Remember last week, for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, friends, our faithful response now is to go and receive his grace and show his love to the world, to love our neighbors well, to grow in love of God, to go forth as salt and light and see our lives look different. I bet next week if I ask you, are you a little more sanctified than last week, you're probably going to, I don't know, kind of response, right? I'd love to have this conversation 10 years from now. I'd love for us to keep praying, God, pour out your grace upon us that we might be made more holy, that we might love you more fully and love our neighbor more fully. I believe God has promised it, and I've seen it in my life and in lives of so many of you, that when we pray for God to do a work, God does the work. Does that make sense? Carla and Ruthie nodded really big. I didn't... um, all right, Junis is nodding now. I'm, I'm good. She, whew. That's a gaze at you. You're really uncomfortable right now, aren't you? You're like, Chad has forgotten what he's saying. No, I said what I wanted to say. I'm struck by the uh, amount of God's grace in your lives. I've sat down and talked to so many of you, and we've talked about the hard moments and the hard moments that are still going on now and the things that you have struggled through, uh, and yet you've also talked about the way God has uh, worked and been present, the things that you are uh, striving in and the ways in which uh, you are living your lives. I get excited about you going forth and love and peace to serve the Lord. I get excited about the ways in which God is still sanctifying you. 
I love this church. I love you. And I love that we are united in God's grace to go forth. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, uh, we give thanks that when our love failed, your love remained dead steadfast. We give, uh, remain steadfast. We give thanks that uh, your uh, incarnation and ministry and life and death and resurrection uh, defeated Adam's sin, uh, that death has lost its grip on us, and that uh, through your grace, uh, sin no longer reigns in our heart. Lord, pour out your grace upon us that we might be made holy, that we might grow in love of you and love our neighbor, that as we go forth, uh, the world might see you in our very everyday, ordinary actions, that while we are indeed still just people, we are just people that you loved enough to come and to live and to die for. Pour out your grace upon us, O Lord. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.